Hello and welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, director of the SMF and previously a political journalist at Westminster, where I spent my time talking to politicians, officials and other insiders about politics and policy. And now I'm going to talk to you about those things in these podcasts. Today's edition is brought to you as part of our Ask the Expert series, in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded academics to Westminster and use their expertise to enrich the policy-making conversation. Today's guest is Jim Watson, head of the UK Energy Research Centre and professor at University College London. Rather than have this blanket approach saying, well, climate change is important, this is what we need to do. Actually, what's important in particular as might be jobs or health, social cohesion. We're talking about carbon emissions, so where we are now, how we got here, where we're going to go next, what that will involve in terms of changes in day-to-day life, and then the all-important question of how we get people to buy into that. So, Jim, just start us off by describing where are we now in the UK in terms of our carbon emissions? What's the, what's the current situation? So the current situation is that we've reduced emissions by about 45%. That's all greenhouse gases since 1990. So, you know, we're doing quite well compared to many other countries. I think the government is fond of saying we've done that whilst overall growing our economy during that same period. So the overall picture, if you look back at what we've done, is positive. And what have been the big drives of that change? What have we done more of or less of to get to that point? So if you look at the different sectors, I think there's probably two which account for most of that reduction. One is the power sector. We've seen some really rapid falls in power sector emissions, partly because of driving coal out of the system. So traditionally, the UK used a lot of coal in its power sector to generate electricity, and now it's down to about 5% last year, so it's gone down a lot. Some of that's been replaced by gas, but at the same time, we've also seen a, a rise in renewable energy generation. So last year, in 2018, it was about 53% from renewable energy and from nuclear power. So so zero carbon or very low carbon electricity. So the power sector is a big part of the story. The second big one is industry. That's gone down partly due to energy efficiency measures in industry, but partly through to changes in the structure of the economy. So there are industries that were in the UK and are now smaller in the UK. So we're buying goods and services from abroad that were from the UK. Offshoring industrial trade. So there's some sort of offshoring but going to, on. To, to come back to your first point on power, the fact that coal is not really a big part of our energy generation anymore. Yes, yeah, it's a huge thing, isn't it? It's very, very big. And in terms of the sort of history and politics of energy in the UK, coal has often been at the heart of that. If you think of uh, the minor strike of the 80s or even the general strike of 1926, the role of coal in the (laughs) energy sector and in the economy more generally has been massive. And we're about to exit it altogether. Yeah, because because we already have some a fair number of days in any given year where coal contributes nothing to power generation. Is, it, is that right? Yes, that's right. You know, so you've got periods of several days. I think the re- recent one happened over the Easter weekend, for example, this year in 2019, and and that will happen more and more as time goes on. I think governments made a commitment that it'll be all gone by 2025, but it may well have gone substantially before then. The plants are old, and there'll be commercial decisions taken about when to retire them. Like I said, I, I think it's one of the, the huge, or not entirely un. un- marked on shifts in public life in my lifetime. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the Northeast. My various members of my family were, were, were miners. Coal, absolutely central to life and politics. And mm. so, you know, my first political memories of the, the, the miners' strike and now mm. all gone. So, uh, you know, which I guess it illustrates the sort of... <laughs> the scale, the sort of magnitude of change that's involved in this area. So thinking about it in those terms, I suppose, what what's next? What's, you know, you, okay, can you sort of set out for us a little bit, I where, where we're going to go next in terms of policy objectives, mm. 
And then can we talk a little bit about what that might mean in terms of other things that we're going to do, we're going to do more of and, and less of in future? Yeah, so although we've done well and we're on our way to meeting our targets in the medium term, so at the moment we have this framework, Climate Change Act framework, where we are supposed to reduce emissions by 80% by 2050 compared to 1990, and some interim carbon budgets, as they called, which go to 2032. So we're on course to meet some of those budgets, but but once we get into the 2020s, early 2030s, current policies aren't going to get us there mm. in terms of reducing emissions as much as we need to. So the next steps are now for more action in a whole number of areas. It's continuing to do more on the power sector. It's doing well, but it needs to do more. But then there's whole areas where we really haven't started to make inroads at all, heating being one in homes and businesses and transport being another let alone industry and other areas of emissions. So there's whole areas of emissions where policy really needs to start doing some work where we really haven't seen any progress in emissions so far. I mean, that's a slightly depressing way of looking at it, I suppose. We suggest that something as big as getting rid of coal from the energy mix, that was the low-hanging fruit here, wasn't it? That, that was one of the easy things compared to what might come next. Is that is that fair? I think true, although if you see it in a slightly longer term perspective, clearly, the you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the, the politics of coal over, mm. say, the period since 1970 haven't really been plain sailing. We've had a lot of dislocations. <laughs> Arguably, it brought down one or two governments yes. in the process. So we've had the difficulty. And actually, that transition away from coal towards gas has been happening since I was born yeah. in 1970. So through the 70s, we had shift away from using coal to provide town gas for heating, some shifts in industry. In the 90s, it was power generation. And now we're seeing the sort of end game, as you might call it. But having said that, compared to that latter stage, which has all been about power stations, yep. we are now going to get back into some of the more difficult things, talking about people's homes, the way they heat, yep. the cars they drive, you know, much more decisions that affect them personally in a much more direct way. Yeah. Let's try and take those in, in order, I suppose. Let's start with, with home heating. So one of the things I was struck by in, in your research that you're presenting for us here at the SMF today was where Britain sits in terms of the way we heat our homes is relatively unusual, isn't it, compared to comparable comparable European countries? Yes, yes, we are. If you were to look at us on a spectrum of those like the UK, which are largely gas-based, so mm. most people, I think something like 80% of homes roughly in the UK are gas boilers. Others are oil because they're off-grid and other things. There are some other countries like that, such as the Netherlands. But actually, if you look at other European countries, there's much more of a mixed economy. Yep. Some really is focusing on heating through electricity. So it's very different. And that legacy of that gas network and the gas production that goes with that really has an impact on the way in which we think about heating in the future. And it, it may end up either limiting or steering our options for decarbonisation because of that history. I, I'm cheating and looking at one of your charts here, which shows that in Norway, for instance, I think more than 80% of residential and commercial heating is electric, yeah. Not, yeah, not gas. In Finland, about 50% of, of heating is district heating. Mm, so literally, mm. uh, there's a, actually, you, you're much better at this than I am of a district heating system. I mean, that's where you have um, a common set of heat pipes in the street. It pipes heat to all the buildings in a particular area. The heat will be generated centrally. I mean, sometimes it's a building level, sometimes on a district level by a boiler. Often that's fueled by oil or gas mm. or fossil fuel, sometimes by a cleaner fuel these days. But the point is that it's collective. I mean, yep. individual homes can control things like temperature and so on. But often, you know, you can't go out and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to change my heat supplier tomorrow no. because actually there is one heat supplier and that's the ones you've yep. got. There's regulation to make sure people don't pay too much. But it's not like the UK where you can say, well, I, I don't like, you know, for sake of argument, British gas, so I'm going to go and yep. join another company uh, tomorrow. Um, those competitive points 
points that we have as a feature of energy market are they're not unique but certainly the UK is again an outlier in yes. terms of how far we've gone with that allowing people choice and uh, another means of heating homes with breezes less carbon is to switch away from natural gas to hydrogen is that that's right. So if you can produce that, because clearly in hydrogen, it doesn't exist in large quantities naturally, so you've got to produce it. And if you can produce it using low carbon emissions, either by splitting water using electricity, so that's one way. Another way is to take methane, natural gas, and process that so you produce hydrogen and CO2 and bury the CO2. So there are low carbon ways to produce that hydrogen. People think then you could use the existing gas network. You'd have to modify some of the appliances, like we did way back when, when we got North Sea gas. But the sort of feel and the way it works and the way it operates is generically quite similar if you were to overcome all of those challenges than what we have now in many homes. The the bottom line of this, I guess, is that if we are going to significantly reduce the carbon output of the UK arising from domestic heating, Mm. something's going to change in our houses. The current setup, most people have got a gas boiler which fires up, heats water. That has to change to get get us towards this policy endpoint of zero carbon emissions, doesn't it? Yeah, that change either means going to a hydrogen boiler... It probably needs to be coupled with retrofitting homes to make them more efficient, Mm. which is quite hard and costly and intrusive if you're really going to do it properly. But if you don't do that, then actually the amount of low carbon heat you need is much, much higher. So your overall cost might be higher. But if you go another way and say, well, actually, it's not hydrogen, it's electric heating. Again, that's a whole different set of technologies. They're not as familiar in the UK as they are in other countries like Sweden, where heat heat pumps, as they're called, which um, extract heat from the air outside or from the ground and use it to heat homes. It works in a very different way the feel the customer experience if you like is very different so all of these roads need to be trialed more as much as for their social acceptability as for the technical and economic feasibility and that's the sort of thing we need to be getting on with in the next few years okay so that's home heating obviously the industrial heating is an issue as well the other area you mentioned was transport where I think, is it right to say that while there's been a big, big move in the carbon emissions arising from power generation, transport, we've pretty much been flat? It's pretty flat in terms of emissions. It was rising slowly. I think it's flatter now, but there's certainly, you haven't seen any, you know, significant movement. But aren't we all driving hybrids now? I haven't got a car, I should say. But has the shift to electric vehicles or hybrids not started to make a difference? It's really in early early days, and because of that, it's really not making an an effect on the headline number of emissions. So at the moment, this is car sales. I think last year, something around 6% of new cars and vans were either hybrids, plug-in hybrids, or pure electric, or perhaps biofuels in a few cases. Pure electric like the Teslas or the mm. Nissan Leaf for people who are, want this something a bit more affordable is about one and a half percent. So that's every year. Of course, that takes time to then work, work its way through the fleet of vehicles, some of which are 10 plus years old. So it's really in the early stages. So it has to go a lot further, a lot faster to have an effect on that emissions headline. And going further and faster, is that that just means more or of that sort of vehicle on the road and getting getting all the vehicles off the road? Is there another clever way of doing that that I, I can't see? No, I think it is. And I think, you know, in the early stages, like any market, there's a role for government in giving yeah. incentives, tax breaks, which we've had in the UK. They're more generous in some other countries crucially for electric vehicles there's still charging infrastructure that still puts a lot of potential owners of electric vehicles off now the range of those vehicles is getting better is can i charge you know thinking about the journeys they want to take range anxiety range anxiety as it's called is really still very important and then there's the bringing the cost down of the vehicles analysis you see by people who, who do look at this in detail they would say well once I've seen anyway, perhaps cost parity by 2025 in terms of mm-hmm. purchase costs. Whole life running costs, you find it's perhaps 
perhaps cheaper now, but you've got to offset that higher upfront cost with lower running cost. So yes. that's lower cost over time. Whereas if you're really interested in lower cost when you buy the car, mm. you're going to be waiting for a few years before that happens. So a lot of that has to happen. And then we also have to think about, well, if lots of people buy them, what impact does it have on the grid? Have we got the grid reinforcement? How do we manage that? There are plans in place, but there's a lot more to do at the local level to make that happen. So I think for me, the big thing there is it's not like heating in that there's something people have latched onto. It's caught the imagination of many mm. people, many drivers who like driving, really like electric vehicles, the way they perform. But you really don't want to be getting in the way of that enthusiasm. You want to be encouraging it as much as possible to make that shift quicker. So I suppose in terms of day-to-day life, the picture you're painting is of uh, a situation where our, our houses, our homes, our lives and our sort of you know, day-to-day existence change quite a lot because to get to this zero carbon point, we're going to have to rip out lots of boilers and we're going to have to get lots of cars that are currently on the road off the road. So that's quite a big shift, which I think leads us on to the second half of this conversation, which is the bigger, more complicated question in many ways, how you actually make that politically and socially palatable and possible. Yes. I mean, it's always been a feature of how we need to think about this low carbon transition. But as we think about tightening the long term target and being even more ambitious, which may have effects on things like, you know, diet, land use and whole Mm. other areas of people's Ah. lives then it's more and more important to think about it in a just way, who pays and all those distributional issues. And, and aviation, like, like the aeroplane that just flew over the office, which you can probably hear in the background, come to that. So I guess sticking with those two, those two subjects, home heating, home energy use and, and driving, those are two areas where politically people get very excited. When you say to someone, I'm going to do something significant to your, to your, to your energy bill or to your car, they tend to respond quite you know, quite significantly. This was the polite way of putting it. So what lessons do you draw from with domestic energy? The last how many years, one of the prevailing stories of energy policy has been the imposition of a number of tariffs on energy bills, which are meant to sustain and support environmental policies. How, how well do you think that's gone, trying to fund transition through supplements on, uh, on energy consumption? I think in the early days, it probably worked quite well. Obviously, in retrospect of thinking the last few years, it has become more politically difficult. I think it is important to remind ourselves that there has been a fair bit of misinformation in the conversations about this. So one is that sometimes the effect of policy costs has been exaggerated. It's, you know, just over 10% of the average bill, rather than being the main driver of high energy prices or rising energy prices. Uh, The other point is that although electricity prices in the UK are above average for Europe, our gas prices are very low. So lots of things get confused in the same conversation. And there are other drivers of prices going up, such as underlying costs of natural natural gas, for example, and uh, charges for networks. So I think it is important to disentangle those things. And in the early days, I think it was a good way to provide a stable revenue stream for things like energy efficiency programs and the early days of renewable energy. But now that we've been through that political controversy, clearly you can't reset and go back to where we were and just pretend it didn't happen. We are where we are. And I think it is more difficult now, even the work we've done to look at you know, how willing people are mm. to pay more through their bills doesn't indicate they're prepared to pay a whole lot more than now, unless there's some sense in how that's being used, 
how it's being offset, what are the benefits to them in terms of greater energy efficiency. So at the very least, I think it has to be approached yeah. in a different way, or we have to look at other options. Well, yeah, I mean, on that, obviously, if, if we're talking about a big shift in domestic energy well, use, not so much as consumption, so it's like that move away from gas boilers to a hydrogen mm. boiler or a district heating system, whatever it is, it doesn't sound to me, and experience doesn't suggest that trying to fund the costs of that sort of transition through increments on domestic bills is going to be a very politically sustainable approach. Do you, do you agree? I think that's right. And actually, the scheme that we have at the moment, which is relatively modest, the Renewable Heat Incentive, that's the scheme that's actually brought down the government in Northern Ireland. So there's a whole set of conversations there. But if you think of it as a mainstream policy to demonstrate and deploy low carbon heat solutions, that is funded through taxation. So that's Mm. funded through a different route already. Of course, things like network costs and changes may find their way through into bills. But I do think you know, we have to think of a different way of doing it, especially if we're thinking about doing some large-scale trials on some of these options for low-carbon mm. heating, whether it be hydrogen or the electricity route or whatever, or projects for local authorities. That's the sort of thing that general taxation ought to probably be paying for or borrowing for investment because it's infrastructure, you know, rather than saying it all has to be piled on pills, because some of those costs, at least initially, may actually be quite significant. And you and your colleagues, have, you've looked at the distributional questions of funding this sort of change, haven't you? You've looked at, essentially, by income group, who would pay for the transition if you choose to fund that through through energy bills and if you fund it through, through general taxation. Summarise, again, I'm, I'm cheating, I'm looking at the chart here, but can you, can you, can you summarise roughly what that chart tells us about the difference in distributional impact of funding this from consumption or taxation. Yeah, so this was really a a thought experiment that we did looking at how those costs are distributed now, looking at different income deciles, richest to poorest or highest to lowest, and basically what it showed that uh, the proportion of income paid for these policy costs by your lowest income decile is much bigger than the proportion of the income for the highest. So the lowest is about 1.5% of their income total, and that's just for those policy costs. For the lowest, it's something like less than or around 0.1% of income. So one of the thought experiments we did was said, well, what if you then put that those costs, exactly the same cost, onto general taxation and then use the tax rates and allowances and everything? And what you find is you take out the lowest income decile from paying anything at all because of tax thresholds. Yes. And you've actually reversed the distribution. So as you get higher in income, you pay a slightly more proportion of your income. But again, under that scenario, I'd imagine in the grand scheme of things, if nothing else changes, people on medium and higher incomes are not going to notice that change so much. Whereas if you're on a low income, 1.5% of your income is is significant when you're counting every penny. So broadly speaking, what what that means at the moment, we're funding part of our transition to a low carbon economy through a regressive policy that requires people on lower incomes to pay more and people on higher incomes to pay less. If we made the shift from green tariff supplements, what David Cameron apparently once called green crap. If we moved away from that system to funding it through general taxation, we would be moving to a progressive system where the richer you are, the more you pay to transition. Yeah, uh, and I think that's that's what what you would do through that process. And you could apply that to all sorts of other areas, you know, proposals for Mm. things like frequent flyer levies and other things. I mean, they're not going to be politically straightforward, but this notion of fairness in how you pay for all of this, I think, has gathered the currency. And I I do think it's important. I think the other thing which our analysis hasn't got into is, well, who's actually got the benefit of all this stuff people have paid for? And there isn't good enough data, I don't think, on that. I mean, clearly some of those energy efficiency measures that have been paid for 
have found their way into low-income homes, but there's certainly the solar panels that have been paid for, mainly medium, high income, some social housing. So it's important to think about you know the distribution of benefits about as well as the distribution of costs. But I think one thing which reinforced the sense that this is the wrong way to go at the moment is that those benefits have benefited people on medium, higher incomes yeah. more than people on low. So that's the other side of the coin that we have to ensure is to make sure we're really targeting things like energy efficiency first at people on lower incomes because that gives them those immediate benefits as well as helping in the climate change transition. And I, I want to come to that, that question about how to make the, the transition politically sustainable in a second. But on go back to cars and transport, all of the similar pattern there. Again, what's that going to feel like? Who are the people, do you think, who are at the moment most likely to feel the, the costs and mm. impact of a shift in transportation? I think if you're thinking in electric vehicles, you know, cars and vans, mm. there's a number of things that are being paid for. One is that as more people adopt them, then you're going to have to reinforce some of the local electricity networks. Those charges traditionally get shared by all consumers in a particular region of the country. One thing colleagues have raised is whether if you get certain areas of the country going faster than others, will that introduce inequality? Should we be sharing those costs as a nation or should we be, you know, should London pay its own network reinforcement costs, southeast, northeast, etc.? So there's some thinking to be on about yes. fairness there. I think the other area is um, charging. There's a lot of government money and industry money, although not fast enough and the, the budget isn't being spent fast enough, going into charging points and charging networks. Some of that is being funded by the private sector. That's coming out of central taxation at the moment. So arguably, there's a, again, it's coming through a fairer approach already. So in a way, it's the network reinforcement cost that I think is the area which is closest to the energy bills example, where it could lead to some inequalities. And again, it comes back to the point of thinking about all these changes altogether, not just home heating, but transport and other areas, and just really thinking across the board, what's the cumulative total impact? And are we piling up a load of costs across lots of different areas on particular sectors yes. of society? The big picture of this is the political bit. There is a political consensus of sorts around this area, thanks to all sorts of things, David Attenborough, polar bears, Greta Thunberg, all the rest. It is agreed by almost everybody in politics that we should the objective of significantly reducing carbon and greenhouse gas emissions. So in that sense, the picture is quite rosy. All politicians agree, hooray. But we haven't really got to the difficult stuff yet, have we? We haven't got to the point where politicians who will the ends start talking to the electorate about the means, about all of this stuff. Who's going to pay? I I think that is right. And I think it's not obviously very easy, but it is more straightforward for a set of parties to say, well, we want a net zero target for 2050, you know, all the emissions taken out of the economy. 2050 is still a long time away, you know, 30 odd years. Whereas saying, well, this is the next step we need to take, which is compatible with that over the next five years, and this is what it means, is much more difficult conversation. And I think as we go into these areas of heating, potentially to land use and diet, potentially to aviation, mm. there's a whole set of political bear traps there that you know people could fall into. My feeling is, you know, from a research perspective, we do a fair bit of research on sort of talking to citizens and trying to understand what what their views are about the future of the system, how to pay, is that you can't start those conversations early enough. The other point is that it's probably not just one national conversation in that the transition may look different in different regions, partly because Mm. of the legacy, partly because of income, partly because of the kind of industries and jobs you have in a region, and partly because of some of the decisions you're going to need to make on the ground. So actually upstream engagement, which is code for doing things earlier and having those conversations before you say to people, right, in this area, you're now going to have hydrogen heating or... Mm. 
now we're going to do this with the pattern of land use through our next plan for the local authority is really to talk to people about what this might mean and what sort of decisions and choices people might want to make. You know, that it's not going to solve the problem, but I certainly think that's a minimal yeah. thing that government at various levels need to do. This will sound gloomy, I suppose, but what you're saying is that we need political leaders of all sorts to start a honest, complicated conversation with the electorate about something that could be painful and difficult and requires quite a nuanced understanding of evidence, fact, science and the rest. Any thoughts on how politics as it stands at the moment measures up to that standard? I think that's very challenging indeed. You're absolutely right to ask that question and to question whether this is going to be possible. I think, you know, one perhaps lesson from talking to some people in local authorities, we held a conference last week where many of them came to speak, is really couching these things in terms of local issues that matter and local agendas, rather than have this blanket approach saying, well, climate change is important, this is what we need to do. Actually, what's important in particular as might be jobs or health or social cohesion. So thinking about what are the issues that resonate and linking it to them. I think it's why the local conversations matter. Mm. And actually some of the leadership you're seeing is happening more at local authorities where you are getting local leaders saying, whether it's Andy Burnham in, in Manchester or you know the lead councillor in Oxford who wants to do a citizen's assembly on all of this without making decisions. So I, it's, it's not being rosy about all of this, no. but I, I do think there's something about having local conversations which might help because you've got more sense of what is going to work on the ground. That is small L political leadership because mm. actually some of these organisations, either, either local authorities or the municipal mayors, they don't necessarily have many legal powers in the area, but they have the convening power, they have the ability to start the conversation, don't they? That's right. That is their perennial complaint is, you know, they don't have enough money and they certainly yep. don't have the capacity, especially now the, the squeeze on local government is very big and they've got statutory responsibilities and this isn't one of them. But at the same but time, they can talk. But they've got the convening power. They can get partnerships of actors together and start to make changes. You do see some striking differences across the country, though, you know, mm. those areas where you've got high levels of social capital, relatively wealthy populations, lots of things going on. They're the ones that are really doing a lot. And then lots of local authorities who, even if they want to, struggling to make some really incremental gains. And I think that's where central government has a role yep. in rebalancing the resources available. So there's more central government can do, but I do think that convening power at the local level is important. And when when and if these conversations start, just to pick up on your point about demonstrating incentives, if I'm hopefully not over-reading what, you, what you've said, I think you're suggesting that it, it is easier to get buy-in for this stuff or for the transitions for the change, even the costs that will be involved if that conversation is couched in terms of local benefit, not some ambient goal about a cleaner, greener planet. Or, I mean, bluntly, you should do this because it will bring some jobs to your town or make your street happier and better, not because it will save a polar bear. I think that's right. And it's sort of mm. behind that old phrase of think global, act local, isn't mm. it? That, 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 that Maybe the driver might be a global one, but the local one, you know, is what really bites for people. And there are different issues which will be important as to what motivates people in different circumstances. So, you know, I do think that's important. But at the same time, those resources for local government. You know, if you compare the UK to some other countries, we've started shifting things. So devolution to Scotland and Wales now means something in terms of powers and levers and money, but it could go further. But at local level, we're we have a comparatively weak system when compared to some other countries where local action yep. can go further. So that's a much broader issue. But if we're going to be thinking about transition to a net zero economy and thinking about that as a central goal of government, then thinking about some of these broader structural issues is perhaps part of how we respond to it. I should say for the benefit of listeners, I have nothing against polar bears at all. Just I'm curious to know how effective they are as a, a tool of policy change. One sort of that we've touched on briefly, I, I want to try and capture very quickly before we, before we bring through 
to an end, just again in terms of how life changes and how life will feel different, you alluded to it a couple of times. You mentioned, well, land use and diet. Obviously, one of the big trends we've seen, social trends of the last year or two, is we're all vegan now. Nobody eats meat anymore, apparently. I mean, I mean how significant a contributor to carbon emissions could that trend be if it continues, do you think? And can you ever imagine a situation when a government of the day says it is now a policy objective to reduce the raising and the killing of and consumption of, of animals for the sake of environmental policy? I can't see them doing that tomorrow. And in a sense, this is a, it's sort of an example of social change that happens anyway. It's already yeah. happening for a whole range of different reasons and how it fits with this climate change agenda. So I think diet is an example of a social change that has emerged, sometimes for environmental reasons, sometimes health reasons, sometimes other reasons. And it's going in that direction. It may need more of a push in a particular direction. It's not necessarily saying we have to phase out, you know, the consumption of meat and dairy altogether because there's not necessarily an argument for that. But it's a social change that's already happening and it's going in the right direction, but it may need to be accelerated or extended. I think you can contrast that with other social changes, such as flying and air travel, Mm. where you've got a social trend going in the wrong direction, at least unless we can try and find our mythical low-carbon plane, which some manufacturers are looking at. In other words, demand for air travel is... We're flying flying more more and more, uh, although it is uh, unevenly distributed. Again, going back to our theme, you know, people on higher incomes fly much more than people on lower incomes, and so the footprint is bigger. But in a sense, if government wants to do something about that, you're, you're having to try and push against a trend which is going in the wrong direction yeah. uh, and that's more challenging politically it's not to say you shouldn't try and do it but I think that's harder than the, the shift in diet where you at least you, you can go with the grain of something that's happening for a whole host of different reasons I think I'm an outlier I'd happily give up flying if, I could, if I've got to keep my bacon sandwiches but the, the bottom line of this conversation I suppose the one takeaway the whole point we do, we do this, these podcasts this whole exercise is to essentially try and connect the sort of expertise that you, you develop in your work at your centre with the, the Westminster conversation with politicians and people involved in involved in politics. It is basically, I'm trying to summarise you, start talking about this stuff now and start talking honestly and talk more. Is that fair? Yes, yeah, certainly start talking about, you know, the transition in specific ways as well as about general ways. You know, it's not just national but local. But also start doing, and even in those areas where we're not quite sure what the road ahead is, heat being the classic example is you really need to start doing and trialling and testing some of the options at scale. And that's not just because we want to know the technology and the economics work, it's actually because we want to know what's going to fly socially and distributionally. And that's the reason to trial these things as well as the economics and the technology. So it is talking, it's engaging, but it's actually doing, even in those areas where the road ahead isn't clear. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all from us. This has been a Social Market Foundation podcast in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council. And our guest has been Jim Watson of the UK Energy Research Centre, Professor at University College London. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you can do so again sometime. Bye-bye.